The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So let's go ahead and look to God's Word together. What a, a privilege we have to look to God's Word, Scripture, the living Word of God, which is, for the Christian, it is the milk for our soul, the milk that gives spiritual nutrition and growth in an ongoing way, and also the meat that we need spiritually. That's what we feed on. And so I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, you need to have your nose in God's Word on a regular, ongoing basis, in the words of Peter, so that you might grow thereby. And if you're a Christian and you're not in God's Word on a regular basis, your growth is going to be stunted and your faith will be undermined by Satan himself, uh, among other enemies. So it is a privilege for us to corporately go through his Word together. And we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a Blessing to do so, 16 chapters. We're in chapter 15, so we're near on the finish line. And we're looking at verses 12 through 19 today, and all of chapter 15 goes together as one topic or one theme. One problem that Paul is trying to solve, and that is a doctrinal heresy that is in the Corinthian assembly. Up to this point, it's been practical problems that they have had, immoral living, uh, divisive behavior, gossip, suing each other, cliques. But this is the one doctrinal heresy that he deals with, and he spends the entire chapter, uh, and it's their wrong view on the resurrection. And it's just a few. He says some, but it's a, a major doctrine. And even if it's just a few, that can spread like cancer. So he needs to stop it definitively and authoritatively, and he does. So we're going to be looking at that. It states the problem in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, uh, chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 15 where he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you Corinthians who are in the Corinthian church say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So uh, the problem stated is that there are a few people in the Corinthian church. Paul is just assuming they are Christians. This is amazing. Uh, from a pastoral point of view throughout this whole book where Paul confronts the most egregious, grossest, mind-boggling, shocking sins going on among Christians in a local church. And he, he never doubts their salvation. We need to learn from that. True Christians are vulnerable and susceptible to the grossest of error and sin. Really. Now, there, no doubt there are unbelievers sprinkled in the Corinthian congregation, but Paul's just assuming they're, they're Christians. They're sinful Christians and immature. They need to grow. And so Christians can really get into some seriously bad behavior and bad habits. So the takeaway for us is we see somebody who professes to be a Christian or is in our midst or in our body and they're struggling with something or they're involved in some egregious sin. At the first blush, we can't just say, oh, they're probably not a Christian. Paul doesn't do that. That's what the church discipline process is for. Um, but he does call them to back to the high and holy, perfect standard of a holy God. And that's what he's going to do with this wrong thinking, this doctrinal error, that some in the Corinthian assembly apparently believed that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. So who knows what they believe. You, just, you die and then you go into nothingness or maybe there's immortality. But anyway, there is no bodily resurrection. And we already talked about why many of the Greeks thought that way. And so this has crept into the church. 
And some professing Christians are actually espousing this. They're influencing others. They're undermining the faith of other Christians. It's creating division. And also it has implications to our practical life. Wrong theology always affects how we live in the end in a wrong way. So Paul has to put a stop to it. So he's going to address the few, but he's speaking to everybody because this needs to be stopped. Uh, This teaching needs to be silenced. So let me read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, only we are of all men most to be pitied. So from verses 12 through 9, after delineating and defining very clearly what the gospel is, and at the very heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then he gives five uh, historical verifications of eyewitnesses validating the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he defines what the gospel is that saves, the gospel that supposedly the Corinthians believed and embraced, by which they stand as Christians, which they are committed to, in light of that gospel that you believe, that at the heart of it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How in the world can we have people in the Corinthian church saying there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead? It is totally illogical, uh, let alone absolutely heretical. And so Paul gives... Basically, he takes on the argument just to show the fallacy of it, uh, how it's illogical, it is inconsistent, and then he shows logical implications if it were true that there was no resurrection from the dead. The main one being, he says twice, if there is no resurrection from the dead for anybody as a truism, which some of you propagate, then point number one, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Then your gospel is out the window. It's his argument. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there are implications from that for professing Christians. And so he's going to delineate what those implications would be if Jesus, in fact, didn't rise from the dead. Which takes me to a question for you to think about and meditate upon, and that is, is it possible for someone to become a Christian without believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's a relevant Important question for us today. Because there are many in the evangelical church today and for years that would say yes. They've written on it. They've preached on it. They've written books about it. It's actually a very popular view, if you can believe it. And I would challenge you uh, to examine that view by looking just every time you see a Bible track, you know, Bible tracks, little things that supposedly give the gospel. Some are good, some are bad, some are ugly. So you have to be discerning. But every, th- every time I get a Bible track, first thing I'm looking for, does it have the complete gospel? And I'm amazed at how many just say, uh, you're a sinner. Okay, that's good. God is holy. Okay, that's good. You're separated from God because you sin. All right. And you need to believe in Jesus. The end. Uh-oh. 
That's not the gospel. That's a truncated gospel. Uh, that's an incomplete gospel. And that content won't save anyone. That's whole, Paul's whole point. It's not even explaining who Jesus is and what he did. That he died, died for sin. And the exclamation point on the gospel, that G, who Jesus is and what he did, is that he rose again from the dead. So you don't have a gospel without resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul said. This is the gospel. That Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. So in your little Bible tracts, you got to put the gospel there. You've got to believe in the resurrection to be saved. So I answered the question for us all. Can you be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Christ? It, the gospel isn't just believe in Jesus. Some people hold up placards and at large gathering, believe in Jesus or repent, turn and burn, whatever, or turn or burn. That's not the gospel. It's not a complete gospel. So uh, Paul is being emphatic about what the complete gospel is. We must believe in the resurrection. He said it in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's in chapter 1 and then chapter 9 and 10. He gives us clearly what the gospel is, especially in chapter 10 where he says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you shall be saved. So the resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel. And when we preach and share the gospel with people, it can't just be believe in Jesus or that Jesus loves you or that Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again and Paul gives us the implications of the meaning of the resurrection, the, the need for the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. And that's why uh, the t title of the sermon today, I put the power of Christ's resurrection. Because if we don't have a real resurrection of Christ, we have no power in our gospel, in our living, in the message of the Bible. And so let's go ahead and look at the three points that Paul lays out here. There's more than three points, but I just summarized them in three uh, topical sentences. So let's go ahead and look at those. The power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, verses 12 through 15 is the first one, and that's uh, Paul highlights that Christ's resurrection drives gospel proclamation. If there is no resurrection of Christ, then there is no gospel. It says that in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching, okay, our as an apostle, the apostolic preaching, the word for preaching, kerygma, kerygma, he's emphasizing the content of the gospel, the message that we preach, the information that we give as apostles. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It is hollow. It is empty. Literally, it is nothing. So what Paul's saying is the very heart and foundation and really the power of the gospel message, the distinctive of biblical Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. Because we already talked about this. There are all kinds of plenty of other religious leaders who are significant who supposedly lived a virtuous life. We mentioned some of them. Buddha and all the way up to modern times and Gandhi and whatever. Uh, we mentioned uh, Muhammad and they all have one thing in common. They died and they are still in the grave. They never rose again from the dead. What sets Jesus Christ apart in the gospel message and Christianity is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the good news. That is the message that Paul and the apostles were commissioned to proclaim. It's not that just who Jesus is or that Jesus died for sin, but the fulfillment of it is the fact that he rose again from the dead. 
So a proclamation of a gospel that doesn't include the resurrection of Christ is no gospel. It's an incomplete gospel, and that's what Paul is saying. So we preach, and the message we preach is about the resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, and it's just a moral message about social justice, the social gospel, do-goodism, that message is not distinct, it's not supernatural, it's not going to save anybody, and our message is empty. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that is what gave biblical preaching its supernatural distinctive power. That's why we can go with confidence to, to any sinner, to any person, and preach the gospel to them, and we have inherent power, innate power from the message, not from ourselves. And in that message is the reality that Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we know that they can know if they turn from their sin and commit to him is the fact that he rose again from the dead. He's a living Savior. That's why we can say you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't say that in Islam. Well, you can have a personal relationship with Muhammad. No, you can't. You can have a personal relation, an intimate relationship with Buddha and he'll be your best friend. That's not true. That's not the message of those religions. But it is of Christianity. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He is alive. He is living. That's the heart and foundation of our message. This is the distinctive of Christianity, as I said. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Uh, this is the very thing we preach. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, our preaching is vain. It is worthless. It is a waste of time. Not only that, verse 15, not only is our preaching empty, and hollow and can't save anybody. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be, we the apostles who were commissioned by Jesus, according to Acts 1.8 and then in Acts 1.22, it says that Peter and the apostles were commissioned to go and preach what? The resurrection of Christ. It literally calls them witnesses of his resurrection. That is their mandate. That is their message. That's what they were to preach. That was the content. That's what Paul preached. What did he preach? He preached Jesus, risen from the dead. Acts chapter 17 is one of the clearest. He goes into those pagans who didn't believe in resurrection. They had no idea. By the way, this idea of bodily resurrection for all eternity is absolutely unique to the Bible. It's divine revelation, special revelation that came only from the mind of God. Humans didn't invent it. Humans can't invent it. And no human in the history of planet Earth ever could have conceived such a notion. And we know that even just from looking at the religions of the world. There are no other religions that believe in bodily, eternal resurrection in the next life. Any other religion, false religion or pseudo-Christian religion that believes in resurrection, the reason they believe that is they stole it from the Bible. Literally, uh, Islam believes in resurrection. It's in the Quran. There's not a whole lot of information. It's not uh, delineated exhaustively. There's not a theology of resurrection in the Quran. But resurrection is a belief that they have. Where did they? Where did that come from? It came from the Bible. When Muhammad plagiarized the Bible. And anywhere else you see it in a religion, they got it from the Bible. So resurrection is absolutely unique and distinct. And that's why these pagans that Paul went to in the area of Greece, when he was preaching the gospel and who this Jesus was, and then he got to the great crescendo of the resurrection, and, and he rose from the dead, they flipped out. What in the world are you talking? Where did that? That is weird. This is strange stuff. We've never heard this before. Even the great Greeks that came before them, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they didn't have this understanding of biblical resurrection that is revealed by God to humanity. So for many cultures, people, and religions, it is a new concept when they hear it. 
this resurrection, but it's taught in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This has always been true. This has always been the message and the good news that God has given to his people and the hope of all humanity. The, the idea of resurrection afterlife was not new with Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 when that's what he preached. It was not new with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he preached resurrection and then he was stoned to death. Was not Resurrection was not new with the Apostle Paul as he went and planted churches in Acts 17 where it says Paul preached resurrection everywhere he went. They were carrying on a long legacy of thousands of years that came from God all the way back, get this, to the book of Genesis. That has always been God's great promise. So the very message. Uh, I want to look at a very interesting passage of Jesus. Resurrection was at the heart of Jesus' preaching and his good news. Actually, that was the promise that Jesus gave. Everything was bound up in the promise of resurrection as in terms of Jesus' message. He said things like uh, in John 11, remember when Lazarus, his good friend, died? And then Martha said, when she asked Jesus to bring him back to life, and, she, and Martha said, I know that he'll uh, resurrect at the last day. So she knew as a Jew in resurrection. She got that from the Old Testament. But then Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about uh, that I'm going to raise him from the dead. But then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus claimed that the very reason he came into this world was to impart resurrection life to lost sinners. That's part of the gospel. That's our greatest hope is this bodily resurrection that is perfect and goes on for eternity in heaven with God forever where perfect soul and perfect spirit are bound as one for all eternity in the human body, preserving our identity as who we are as individuals made in God's image to have fellowship with him and the saints and the angels for all eternity. That is the distinctive Christian message. That's what Jesus taught. It was at the very heart of his message and his mission. If there is no resurrection of the dead and if he didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus is a false and a phony. But listen to this interesting teaching from Jesus. Luke. If you look at Luke chapter 20, Jesus gave some additional information about this resurrection in the afterlife. It's absolutely fascinating. Amazing implications that come from it. They were trying to stump uh, Jesus and uh, some Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. They hated Jesus and they're trying to trip him up. Uh, verse 27 of Luke 20 says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who said there was no resurrection. And they questioned Jesus. Um, and they quote from the Old Testament. They, they take the Bible out of context and use it the wrong way. And then they tell the story, verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven brothers married her and then died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also in the resurrection, in the afterlife, therefore, Jesus which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So here's this woman. Uh, she keeps marrying these brothers and they keep dying. So in this life, she had seven husbands. So their question is, so in the next life, who is? since she had seven husbands in this life, when she gets to heaven, who, which one of the seven is she going to be married to? And Jesus corrects their wrong thinking about the afterlife. Jesus said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. 
So Jesus is saying uh, the next life isn't like this life. Uh, we're not going to be married to any humans in the next life. We'll be married as a church, as the bride of Christ. We'll be married to the Lord Jesus Christ, but individually we won't be married. Uh, but he refers to uh, believers in the next life as sons of the resurrection, children of the resurrection. That is ideal humanity. Some people think that ideal humanity is going back to Adam and Eve before they sin. That is not ideal. Ideal humanity is resurrection humanity. That was God's plan all along, and that was one of the important teachings that Jesus gave on resurrection and the next life. So it is at the very message, uh, resurrection is at the very uh, foundation of the apostolic preaching, Jesus' preaching, and our preaching as the gospel. And like I said, it even goes back in the Old Testament. Just quickly, where in the Old Testament, when you think about Martha's comment in John 11, where she wanted Jesus to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead, and she's sad and mourning and crying and weeping. And and then she makes this statement, I know that he will live at the end of the age through the resurrection. So she knew there was a resurrection coming. How did she know that? Well, because God divinely revealed it in the Old Testament. So just a few uh, Old Testament truths or places where resurrection was taught. In Daniel chapter 12, 550 years uh, before Christ, Daniel prophesied and said there's going to be a general resurrection and everyone will be raised from the dead, both believers and unbelievers. So even unbelievers will be raised in a body to be judged. Jesus affirmed that in John chapter 5. So there's uh, that's in Daniel. That's 550 years. A thousand years before Christ, David taught on the resurrection. First in Psalm 16 verse 10 when he made a prophecy that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And because of that great truth, we also would be raised from the dead in light of Christ's resurrection. Because Jesus did say, because I live, you also shall live in John 14. And then in Psalm 23, verse 6, a lot of people don't think about this, but that's a famous psalm. David's shepherd psalm, very short, like six verses. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are with me. And then he concludes by saying, but I get this. David says, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means that David believed in eternal life. He believed in life after the grave. He believed that being in a tangible body, in the tangible place, in a tangible presence with Almighty God, and that can only be fulfilled in his identity, preserved and intact as one who loved God. That can only be fulfilled through bodily resurrection. That was a foreign concept to all pagans. It's a thousand years before Christ. Exodus chapter 3, I want to read this one because this is amazing. This is explicit doctrine in the Old Testament about the truth of the resurrection from the dead. This is given in 1400 B.C. by Almighty God through an angel to Moses at the call of his ministry. The beginning Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out shepherding by the mount of God called Horeb. Then he uh, Moses sees something. It's a bush. It is burning. It is not consumed. And then the bush begins to speak to him. Moses, Moses, said the angel of Yahweh from the bush. And Moses said, here I am. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. The Lord saw, turned aside. Uh, God called him Moses, Moses. Uh, Moses said, here I am, verse 5, Exodus 3. Uh, then God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God is holy. Remove your sandals as you walk in my presence. Moses, verse 5, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your, uh, verse 6. Then he said, here it is. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is one of the most definitive teachings on the doctrine of resurrection. And you might be scratching your head thinking, huh, I don't see that. Well, that's what Jesus said. Because in Matthew chapter 20, he taught about the resurrection and he verified the resurrection and the truth of it and the fact that it was in the Old Testament using this passage. And he quoted this verse to the Sadducees or whoever it was that didn't believe in resurrection. He said, you don't even know the scripture. The Old Testament teaches clearly resurrection. And he used this passage. Well, how in the world does that teach resurrection? Because God is talking to Moses. It's present tense. Jesus puts everything. This is why Jesus believed in exegesis, and he believed in expository preaching, and he believed in the importance of grammatical, historical hermeneutics because he took uh, words seriously and literally and the tense of a, of, of a verb, and that's what he did here. He's All the truth about the doctrine of the resurrection uh, is falls on one word, a small word, the verb to be, in Hebrew and then in, also in the, in the New Testament Greek, and then even the tense of that verb, and it's the verb to be, I am. And Jesus said that is proof of the resurrection, that there is life after the grave, life with God in great intimacy, and that's his argument. Because God said, I am, to Moses, 1400 B.C., Abraham has been dead for 600 years, and yet God is still, present tense, the God of Abraham. In other words, Abraham is still alive. Even though he's not on earth, he is alive. He's risen from the dead. Where is he? He is in heaven with God the Father. That's what Jesus argued in the Gospel of Matthew. This is resurrection truth. He gave it to Moses. Moses believed it. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac, who is dead, Moses. I am the God of Jacob, who died and yet is still alive. So when you die, you don't go into nothingness. When you die, you don't go into soul sleep. When a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of Almighty God. That has always been true. David believed it. We saw it in Psalm 23. And when I die, I will always be with God forever. That's what he said in verse 6. Job said the same. Job is the oldest book, uh, one of the oldest books in the Bible, almost as old as Genesis. So 18, 1900 B.C., Job himself in chapter 19 said, uh, I will die, my flesh will be consumed, and yet someday I will see my God, my Savior, in my flesh. That is resurrection. 1800 B.C., amazing. God revealed resurrection even before Moses, 1400 B.C., even before Job, 1800 B.C. He revealed it to Abraham in Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham took his son, who was probably a teenager, maybe 16, 17? If that was true of me, then that means my son would have been bigger than me. i got to take him up the hill and Wrestle him down and kill him on this mountain. This is going to be a challenge. Maybe I'll bring two servants with me. So that's what Abraham did. So Abraham takes his teenage son, his two servants, and then he looks up at the hill and says, okay, guys, and he says to his servants, okay, I'm going to go up at that hill. Abraham knew what he was going to do. God told him, you got to go up there, and you have got to kill your son Isaac. And Abraham said, I will obey. Three times in that chapter, Isaac is called, get this, your, your one and only son. Your one and only son. Your one and only son. The interesting thing is, Abraham didn't have one and only son. He had another son named Ishmael, the older brother of Isaac. But scripture says, Isaac was the one and only son. The one and only son. The one and only son. A picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one and only son of the Father, who would be our sacrifice as the Lamb of God. That is the point. The only promised son. And so he takes 
Isaac, but before he takes and he decides to leave his servants behind, okay, you two guys, stay here with the camels and all the food. Uh, me and Isaac, we're going to go up on the hill. And here's what he said in Genesis 22. He said, but we will return. Me and Isaac, we will return to see you again. How in the world could Abraham say that, knowing that he's going to go up there and he's going to slaughter his son and kill him on a hill? And at the same time say, me and Isaac, we're going to be back and we'll meet you here. Why? Because Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. How do we know that? The author in Hebrews explicitly tells us that. Tells us what Abraham was thinking. How did Abraham know in the resurrection? Because God revealed resurrection to him. So resurrection is basic to the proclamation of the Christian biblical gospel and always has been. Nothing has changed. And it remains the same. And the reality of Christ's resurrection is the power in our proclamation. That's point number one. Let's go on to verses 16 and 17. Not only is Christ's resurrection the power to procl- uh, gospel proclamation, Christ's resurrection secures personal salvation. 16 and 17. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, moreover, here's another reason. Um, if the dead are not raised, then Christ isn't even raised from the dead. That's the second time he said that. He's being emphatic here. He wants to put this heresy to rest. There is there is no excuse uh, to hold this view. This is abject heresy. It is to be eliminated. It has no place in Christian thinking. It is not a part of the Christian worldview. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. There are to be no books written. Four views on the resurrection of Christ. There aren't four views. There's one. He is risen from the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised then Not even Christ has been raised, verse 17, and he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith, how personal, your faith is worthless, it is meaningless, it has no efficacy whatsoever. And specifically, as a result, you are still in your sins. So if you deny the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ, then you have no forgiveness of sin whatsoever. Jesus came to do one thing, among many things, but the main thing, Jesus came down as the God-man to rescue sinners. I came to seek and to save sinners. That was his mission. That's what he said in Luke. The only way that Jesus could seek and save sinners from their sin is by conquering sin. Well, how could he conquer sin? The only way he could do it is conquering death. Sin leads to death. And if he conquered death, then naturally sin would be swallowed up in that. Because death is the consequence of sin. So Jesus came to seek and to save sinners and to rescue them. And the only way that he could achieve that was by conquering death. And Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 2, came into this world to conquer the devil and the devil's greatest weapon, which was death. And he did that victoriously by rising again from the dead. Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead in order to secure our salvation. Jesus Christ had to rise again from the dead to conquer death and sin and the devil and the grave in order to secure forgiveness of sin for us. If we don't have a risen living Savior, we have no forgiveness of sin because Jesus had no power over death. He had no power over sin. Paul says this explicitly in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. What the ministry or the atonement of Jesus Christ accomplished by virtue of his perfect life 
his substitutionary death and his powerful resurrection, and also his ascension after he rose again from the dead. But he concludes chapter 4 of Romans by saying this, he who was delivered over or died or was crucified because of our transgressions, he died for our sin. This is a reiteration of the gospel. He died for our sins. He died to secure forgiveness. He died as our substitute. He died to uh, appease a holy God who poured out his wrath on sin. But then it had to be overcome. He had to conquer death. And that's why Paul says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. There it is. It is the resurrection of Christ that secures our justification. The forgiveness of sin. The legal declaration before Almighty Holy God that we are totally forgiven of our sin because Christ rose from the dead. That's why Paul says, if there is no resurrection, there's no resurrection of Christ. And if Jesus didn't rise, you are still in your sin. You're separated from God forever. And you are lost into eternity of hell without hope. That's the implication of this very important doctrine. Christ's resurrection secures personal salvation. No resurrection, you are still in your sin, separated from a holy God. Somebody's got to deal with the sin problem. No other religion in the world deals with the sin problem. And all those religions I mentioned earlier, they don't have a theology of soteriology. There is no theology of the atonement. How is the sinfulness of humanity dealt with by a holy God? They don't answer that question. Only Christianity does. And the only answer given that's the true one that is unique to Christianity is by this Savior who was the God-man, who died as the God-man, the perfect substitute, and overcame sin by conquering death by rising again from the dead. And now he is a living Savior. He's the great high priest. And that's also part of our salvation. We have ongoing forgiveness of sin before Almighty Holy God because Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended back into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father pleading and interceding with the Holy Father on our behalf individually, continually, if you're a child of God. That's what Scripture says. He's the great high priest. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's continually interceding for you, praying for you to the Father about His death, about His resurrection, about your belief, so that you might have forgiveness of sin, ongoing continual forgiveness of sin, and even eternal forgiveness of sin. Jesus, the great, risen, living high priest. It's awesome. So Christ's resurrection is the power for the atonement. It is the power of the idea of salvation, redemption, regeneration, reconciliation, and everything that goes with it. If there is no resurrection of Christ, we have none of those glorious doctrines in which we stand before a holy God. Christ's resurrection secures personal salvation. Then Paul concludes the implication argument from 12 to 19 with verses 18 and 19 where he says, Christ's resurrection ensures eternal glorification. 18 and 19. So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, oh, I forgot to read the rest of verse 15. Um, or after 16 where he says, you are dead in your sins. Uh, earlier he said that also uh, our preaching is in vain and also we are liars. I just wanted to mention that. He mentioned in verse 15 that if there was no resurrection, he was a liar. Verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection of Christ, he didn't conquer death, he didn't conquer sin, he is not alive, he's not the great high priest, he didn't fulfill his mission where he said, If I live, you also shall live. 
He is still in the grave, and he has no, a dead man can't save other dead people. And as a result, Jesus didn't save anybody. So your ancestors who believed in Jesus and who are now dead, says Paul, if anybody that died in Christ, they don't have life with Christ. They're not in heaven in the immediate presence of God. They're still in the grave. They're still damned. They are doomed. They're separated from God forever because of their sin. And that's why he uses this very specific word. They have perished. And that refers to punishment, punishment from a holy God. So there is no hope for your ancestors and loved ones or other people who have gone before you in the faith who have died. No hope whatsoever about their future, their destiny. There's no hope for us about the future either. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And this phrase is beautiful. He said this twice in Corinthians so far where he refers to a Christian who dies as just falling asleep. It's a metaphor and it just means uh, it's just a transition. It's a transition from this life into the immediate presence of Almighty God. When a Christian in this life dies, as soon as they breathe their last breath here, their next breath is literally in heaven in the presence of Almighty God in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's heaven, that is paradise, according to Paul, being in the presence of Jesus in the next life. There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank. There's no soul sleep. The Scriptures are clear about that. So the reality of a a risen Savior who is in heaven with his arms open, ready to welcome every saint who breathes their last breath in this life, their next breath in heaven is the hope of Christianity and the hope of the gospel, that he's a living Savior. He's the great high priest, and he welcomes his children into heaven for all eternity the moment they die because of his resurrection. Because I live, you also shall live for all eternity. And that's what Paul's emphasizing. That's why uh, the emphasis here is on the future, on the hope of eternity, hope that we have in this life with respect to the future and eternity. Then those also who have fallen asleep, believers who have gone before us, who have died in this life physically, they're not dead. They've just transitioned into heaven. But if there's no resurrection, they haven't transitioned into heaven. They're still in the grave, and even worse, they're dead in their sins with no hope separated from God forever. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ, yet, and another implication is, here, how do Christians live their life? Or Here's another way to state it. What If I were to ask you as a Christian, what is your greatest hope in this life? Your, what is your greatest hope? Hopefully in the end, you're going to say that you are confident that when you die, you will immediately go into the presence of the triune God forever. And with that comes eternal resurrection. That's that's the, the ultimate hope of every Christian, or it should be. And that's what Paul's getting at. Our greatest hope. We're walking around as Christians. We've got this residual, the greatest hope that we cling to in this life when all else fails, ultimately, no matter what's going on in my life, ultimately I am secure in the reality that when I die, I will be with my Jesus forever. Well, that's what Paul's getting at. That's the mindset of a Christian. That is the worldview of a Christian. That's not the worldview of somebody who doesn't know Christ. Their hopes are in other things. They don't have hope in the resurrection that is secure by virtue of what Christ has done. 
And if you dig down deep and scratch through veneer, the veneer of what they actually believed, you know what their ultimate hope is? They don't have one. They are without Christ and without hope in the world. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2. There is no hope if you don't know Christ. There's a lot of facades thrown up. A lot of counterfeits, but they're not really soul deep. Only the Christian has this hope. Unbelievers don't have this hope. This is why we live our life. This is what motivates us. What motivates me to live my life as a Christian? This is probably true of you as a Christian. What motivates me ultimately is my relationship with Jesus Christ and eternal hope I have in the resurrection and being with Him. And that's why Paul says, so if Christ, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead and then all of His promises ring hollow like when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And because I live, you also shall live. That is a lie if there is no resurrection. And there is no hope in Christ. And all you Christians, ultimately, you are deceived because your greatest hope is in resurrection eternal life by virtue of what Christ has done. But that's not even a reality. So you live your life. You prioritize your life. You deprive yourself from the things of the world. You refrain from hedonism in light of the reality of the resurrection. And if the resurrection is not true, then your life is meaningless and ultimately we have no hope as Christians. It's Paul's argument in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, that is our priority. Everything we do is oriented around the reality of a living Savior, living, resurrected Jesus. And if that is not true, we are of all people on earth the most to be pitied. That is so true. And that was so true for so many reasons in Paul's day. To be a Christian, for some of the reasons I already mentioned. He's living for one thing, yet it's not even a reality. He's made it his priority. He's made it his passion. Living for the resurrected Savior. Preaching for the resurrected Savior. Being persecuted for the resurrected Savior. Willing to die, and he does, for the resurrected Savior. And yet Jesus is not even risen from the dead. That's why Paul would conclude, then we and me as an apostle are the most pitied of all. We're living a fantasy, a lie for naught. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be hit, to be pitied. But the good news is, Jesus did rise again from the dead. And he did fulfill every single promise. By the way, Jesus had to rise again from the dead in order to earn the right, if you will, to secure our salvation. Because it was His resurrection, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about the Father and His blessed Son, Jesus Christ, who was declared the Son of God by virtue of His resurrection. Isn't that amazing? We can say Jesus is the Son of God only if He rose from the dead. And not only that, when Paul was preaching in Acts 17, we already read it. He preaches uh, this doctrine. He preaches the gospel. And again, the crescendo is when he gets to the resurrection. Uh, God has overlooked past times of ignorance, but not anymore. Because Jesus Christ came into the world and God has uh, God is declaring all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he raised Jesus from the dead as judge. So Jesus had to rise from the dead to be the Son of God, according to Romans chapter 1. 
Jesus had to rise again from the dead to earn the right to judge every soul, according to Acts 17. And he had to rise again from the dead to impart life and forgiveness of sin because that's what he promised to do. Because I live, you also shall live. The very role of Jesus. And then let's look and we'll close with this. Philippians is just amazing. Philippians really is, in many ways, a short theology on the resurrection of Christ and its implications for believers, starting with the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Jesus humbled himself as the Savior, although he was God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be clung to, but rather emptied himself, humbled himself, was willing to come down as a Savior, as the God-man, became the God-man, humbled himself even to the point of death, dying for sinners on a cross, the most gruesome, torturous, humiliating, despicable form of death imaginable. And then he rose again from the dead. The resurrection. And verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. When did did God the Father exalt Jesus Christ? Raised him up. As a result of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, God the Father exalted Jesus and bestowed on the Lord Jesus the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus could not be Lord today if he didn't rise from the dead. He couldn't be the Son of God. He couldn't be the judge of every soul. He couldn't be the Savior of sin. And he could not be Lord unless he rose again from the dead. Those are his credentials. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered sin on behalf of sinners. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul goes on if you look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I know what I'm living for. I'm not living for this life anymore. I'm living for the next life. As a matter of fact, if I died, it would be preferable to die and go to heaven. That's what Paul said. It would be preferable. That was Paul's worldview. Because he knew he would be received by a gracious, blessed, resurrected Savior into his eternal home. And in verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Jesus, his righteousness. Verse 10, and then I may know, present tense, I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ was even power, not just for the future someday, but right now. Living with the power of Jesus' resurrection, his Christian life. That's how we need to live. It's available to us. It is inherent in us through the Holy Spirit, through prayer through the grace of God, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Here it is, verse 11, the goal of every Christian, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's our goal. And it's something that God and God alone does through the blessed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. Very practical for us as Christians in times of sorrow and doubt and suffering and death this week. I visited one of our members who informed me that he was dying and said he had maybe a month to live. And this was somewhat of a surprise. And as we talked for two days, we took comfort in the resurrection. 
That's where his hope is. I wanted to, I'll be honest with you, Pastor Cliff, I wanted to live a little longer. He had some goals he wanted to reach in his life. But I'm going to submit to God's perfect timing. And, and, base, and he told me he's ready to meet the Lord. He believes in resurrection. That is his hope. It's a real hope. It's the hope of every Christian. Thank God for that real hope. By the way, he wanted me to share with our congregation where he's at with Jesus so that you might keep him in prayer. And I said, absolutely, I will do that. So let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together in your precious word. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are alive. The living high priest, the Lord of heaven and earth, the personal Savior to those who have trusted in you, in your gospel. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the comforter in, in every believer and the one who supplies the supernatural power for living this life. And we thank you for the glorious gospel and, and the promise of hope to live this life, but hope in the next life that we will be secure with you for all eternity without sin in your presence glorified in a resurrection body, all because Jesus came to save sinners, conquered death and sin, proved it by rising again from the dead. We give you all the praise and the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.